The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton with you for the next 30 minutes, an open, frank, and honest conversation about gambling addiction. Joining me is always from Epic Risk Management, formerly with the New Jersey Council on Compulsive Gambling, our friend Dan Chilaro. Danny, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Craig. It's great to be back with you this week. Yeah, I know the, the work ethic here we'll talk about another day, but <laughs> <laughs> all good. I know Dan's been traveling the country uh, talking on college campuses to young men and women uh, because that's the uh, fastest growing segment of our society that is now gambling uh, legally. Uh, always happy to have a fellow compulsive gambler with us on the show. And from Florida, we welcome uh, Saki to the program. Saki, good morning, and thanks for taking a few minutes to tell, share your story with us. Good morning, gentlemen. So uh, when was your last wager? My last wager was August 24th, 1988. Well, congratulations. So coming up uh, 34 years uh, this year, knock on wood, right? Knock on wood, yes, sir. So let's go back, if you don't mind sharing the story, because you know one of the reasons we do the show is I'm trying to humanize the addicts for people that have never been exposed to a compulsive gambler. And I think the more and more people that tell their stories, the more normal they will come across to people, and the less uh, stigma they'll be associated with uh, the addiction. When did you uh, start gambling way back in the day? You know, I started gambling when I was a kid. You know, uh, marbles, uh, baseball cards. Uh, flipping coins. You know, as a young kid, it was exciting. I didn't know there was gambling. I just liked the, to get more. And uh, it progressed. Uh, as, as a little kid, I, I, I liked the competition. Yeah, it's funny you mention that. We've had a couple of people start talking about, you know, flipping cards uh, specifically. And I did the same thing. You know, I'm a kid of the 70s. And I never, never dawned on me that that was gambling. But it was a primer for sure. Because I know how I felt when I did win, you know, a stack of, uh, you know, 10 or 15 cards. And that followed me later in life to gambling. So I think our stories are very similar in that regard. When did you get into gambling, whether it was sports gambling, cards, the track, that kind of thing? You know, as, as I got older, um, as a, a young teenager, I would uh, talk to um, other guys and, and we would bet on games. You know, small, small money. Right. Um, and as I hit 18 and went to college, um, I got a bookie. Uh, then I got another bookie. Then I got another bookie. And, um, you know, every time I gambled for the first time, I won. First time I went to Dania Highlight, I won. First time I went to Shoot Craps, I won. And um, it just uh, it progressed. So do you feel, looking back on it with clarity now, that those wins fueled you well past the, uh, the first win because you figured – hey, I've done it before, I'm going to be able to win again, it's just a matter of time? Yes, you know, when, when, when you do something for the first time and you win, you go, wow, this is easy, you know? I mean, <laughs> let's, go, let's go back again next week, let's go again tomorrow. And um, it's just a, a progressive uh, situation. Dan, is that the majority of people? I know there's no such thing as one size fits all, but a lot of people that have come on the show have discussed, hey, if I had lost all my money that first time, maybe I wouldn't have gone back. Yeah, that's almost like the protective factor. And, you know, Craig, I can't help but think we're here in Saki once again talking about growing up, starting early with things that he didn't feel as if we're gambling, right? Flipping cards, whatever it might be. 
And I can't help but wonder with today's gambler, sports betting, they don't see it as gambling. They don't see the harm. They don't see the downside. They win because they get promotions and these, you know, gimmies that are coming on as free bets. And I'm just wondering if we're hearing, you know, what the future looks like 10, 20, 30 years from now. We're hearing it today because that's what it was back then. And look where I mean, we'll hear Saki's story in a bit. But once again, it's that similarity of a good feeling. What's the harm? I don't see the negatives. Uh, that can could potentially lead to someone's problem. Yeah, and I think uh, you know the the uh, card flipping and the marbles that Saki and I and you may have uh, yeah. played with as a kid, uh, Dan, are now yep. you know NFTs. You know, yep. and uh, you know, oh, it's easy. I'll just buy a box of uh, you know digital cards, and I'm sure I'm going to make money on them, or or you know, cryptocurrency. So. It's the same story, just a different way of uh, playing it out, in the way I view it, at least. Yeah, different delivery, right? So, Fast, yeah. more rapid. So, Saki, you go to college, you have a couple bookies. At some point, I'm sure you, you get a job, you're making some money. When did gambling really become everything to you where it was taking up your time and becoming unhealthy? Well, I, um, when I started gambling, all of a sudden I, I was a, uh, a sports fan. So, I, a sports fan... The worst scenario is becoming the sports better. Yep. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I would win, I would lose, and then friends of mine would say, Saki, can you put this in for me? I never made any money on my friends. I just would put the bet in. And um, it just, uh, the small bet got to be bigger bet and bigger bet and bigger bet. And um, some weeks I won, some some weeks I, I lost. And um, I wasn't a smart gambler. I was a degenerate gambler that was not smart. And no money management whatsoever. So no discipline, no money management, no thought of uh, walking away with a win, uh, kind of like an all-or-nothing gambler. And did you find yourself at any point being in financial disarray or trouble where you borrowed money or looked for other ways to get money to gamble? Yes. Well, my downfall is one day I woke up. Oh, prior, there was times that my water would be shut off. My electricity would be shut off. Hmm. Uh, my home phone number, way before cell phones. The reason why is because I didn't pay my bills. The bookie got paid every Tuesday, but I didn't pay my bills. And uh, my rock bottom was the day that I woke up and my car was repossessed. Wow. And uh, when you wake up and, and you, you know your car was gone because of lack of payment, it wasn't like I was in a bad neighborhood and it was stolen. Right. And at 29 years old, I had to call my parents up. I had a condo, I had a good job, and uh, I said my car got repossessed, and they they helped me. And then uh, two days later, I went to my first gambles anonymous. So meeting. it's funny. so you actually told them the truth. You didn't say the car got stolen. You uh, just can't, you copped right to the, right to it right away. I, I, I just did. My parents weren't, weren't the type of people that I could BS. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I, I knew. You know, my hands were in the air. I had to surrender. I was like, okay. The jig is up, and I had to call my parents, and maybe they could help me out. So I wonder, like, was there, before the car got repossessed, w would you go to bed at night saying, hey, I wonder if I wake up, if the car is going to be there, if the electricity is going to be on? Were you playing that game? You know, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking. Um, I was just gambling. Got it. You know, I mean, I was a single guy at 29 that, you know, I, I, I thought gambling was part of the atmosphere. You know, uh, watching m movies out of Las Vegas with the casinos and sports bettors and guys in hats and smoking cigars. And I thought that was a, the big shot, you right. know. 
So the car gets repossessed. You call your folks. They bail you out in that regard. And two days later, you go to a meeting. Were you done gambling? Was that legit cold turkey or no? Yes. I, I had no idea. Um, I got to the my first gambling meeting. Uh, it started at 7.30 p.m. I got to the uh, church in Coral Springs, Florida at 7.15 p.m. and said, God, please help me. Please. I promise I'll never gamble again. And then I walked in not knowing what I would expect. Right. And they were hardcore. They said, first meeting? I said, yes. They said, sit down. We'll get to you. You know, nowadays you get smiles and fist pumps and smiles and handshakes and high fives. There was none of that in 1988. What was it, like tough love kind of thing? It was tough love. And, and, mm. and at the time, there wasn't a lot of young people coming into the program and definitely no women. Um, it was basically old timers, guys in their 60s and 70s um, that were, were old degenerate gamblers. And they viewed you as what? They like they didn't have any pity for you because they knew the road you were going down. So how quickly did it or how long did it take you to want to open up and get actually comfortable in that room? You know, I, I'm a very confident person. So when they asked me the 20 questions and I answered 18 out of 20, um, and I heard all these gentlemen, there was maybe 10 guys in the room, and I heard what they had gone through. I'm like, wow, they know my story. Right. So I would say the first night my, my eyes were open and uh, we read the yellow book from cover to cover. And um, I did not think that that would be the last time I would ever, ever place a bet. Wow. Uh, Dan, let me ask you a question. Uh, in your experience, you're prior to going to Epic when you were with uh, the New Jersey Council. You know, I think uh, Saki made an interesting point how the room has changed. You know, now it's about, you know, a pat on the back and – you know, donuts and coffee, uh, not to say that the work's different because it's not. Have you guys seen a major change in that where the room has become, for lack of a better term, you know, more approachable for a new person walking in? Yeah, I think it has. I can think back to my first time I went into a room, Craig, 12 years ago, February 11, 2010. So it was that first week uh, when I had stopped gambling. And it was uh, over that time, I mean, there were a lot of old timers. I can think about all the members in the room at that time. And I think it varies room by room. I think there's a lot of rooms that have such strong tradition. And it's led by those with so much experience, like Saki and others with 30, 40, 50 years in recovery, who uphold those traditions. I also did not notice many female members in the fellowship. However, over the years, and even a couple of years ago before COVID, started seeing more female activity, uh, younger demographics. And with that comes just a different, it's a different type of gambler today, Craig. It really is. You know, that younger gambler is more tech savvy, more in tune with um, internet gambling, sports right. betting that's on the mobile device. And it's, it's a different demographic. It's a younger demographic, not disrespectful in any way, but just, there's just something different. Uh, it's not good. It's not bad, but it is. There's a changing face of people seeking help and going to 12-step meetings. And we've even seen the growth now of online virtual meetings because of COVID. We yeah. started seeing more people attending meetings virtually. I think that change is actually a good thing. I'll explain why in just a moment. We'll continue on with Saki and Dan right after this on Hello, My Name is Craig. Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton with you. Dan Trelawa, of course, Epic Risk Management. And down in Florida, Saki, who's a uh, gambler in recovery, as Dan and I both are. 
So, uh, Saki, just out of curiosity, when you went into that first meeting and you did go cold turkey and have not gambled since, how long did it take you to kind of get comfortable in life, you know, replacing all the amount of physical and mental, mental time you spent on gambling? I think the cobwebs got out of my head probably after two years. Um, I had a press release meeting within 45 days of my first meeting. So, um, you know, financially, I, I was in a hole, but I had a plan. And um, I, um, after, my, after my second year of not gambling, I was like, wow, I survived it. Right. You know, um, you, you, need, you need air and you need food and water to survive. I didn't need the gambling. And after two years, I realized that I went two years without it. Did you miss it at any point? No, I didn't. I um because what what I what I didn't miss was the phone calls. You know, in 1988, it was before the cell phones and computers. I'd come home to my condo and I had a uh, voicemail, right? And I would hit it and it'd be like blinking 30 messages, and it'd be like from Visa, Mastercard, American Express. You know, everybody wanted money from me because I owed all legal money. The bookie got paid every Tuesday, but all my bills were backed up. And once I had the press release and we had a plan, my life got a little more simpler. Yeah, just speak to that a little bit more if you don't mind, because uh, we spend a lot of time in the show talking about you know how bad the addiction got for all of us and how it you know in a lot of ways ruined our lives. But there are a lot of people that are at step one of this uh, recovery who need to hear from people like you that have uh, you know been 20, 30 years in the program and 20, 30 years without gambling. You know, what would you say to somebody who is at step one where they're finally willing to admit, all right, I got a problem, I need help, but, man, the walls are caving in. I've got financial disaster. I owe a ton of people money. You know, my family doesn't love me, all that stuff, that they can go from there to where you're at now. What would you say to them? Well, you know, gambling is a lose-lose situation. You know, when I first started this interview, I said I won every time I, I gambled the first time. And I always tell people... Look, if you're going to gamble and you don't think you have a problem, write it down. Because if you write down every time you gamble and how much in a course of a year, you're going to end up in a negative. And I know I've been around the program. I, the youngest person I ever saw come in in a gambler's anonymous room was 15, hmm. and the oldest person was 79. Well, that's a pretty good range, right? A big range. Yeah. I, I think it's a good message. You know, and and I, Dan and I talk about it all the time. You just got to be dedicated to doing it. It's like anything else. I Like, you know, the people that even I counsel, you know, I can't make you stop. It, you, and no one was going to make me stop. Whatever it takes inside you, for you it was, you know, having your car repossessed. Dan, what was your moment where you decided you needed help? If I had to think about it, it was probably the moment that I was called into the office on February 11, 2010. Because everything up until that time, I always thought gambling was my solution to get out of my problem. But when I got that phone call from my managing director and said, hey, we want to talk to you. There's a problem. Things aren't adding up. That was in my mind. I was like, yeah, this can't continue. Because before that, I thought gambling was the solution to all of my growing problems because it was the only way I could find my way out of owing that much money to that many people. Gambling was the only thing that made sense to me until that day. Saki, do you counsel young gamblers now? Yes, I am. Um... I mentor a lot of people. I don't sponsor anybody anymore because, to me, a sponsor should be available 24-7. Right. And I, yeah. I, I try to help as many people as I can. I mentor a lot of people. I go to live meetings on Tuesday nights. 
And I, I've been running a Zoom meeting for over two years, way before the pandemic started. And when our Tuesday night uh, GA room stopped because of the pandemic, we, we went to Zoom and, 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 and everybody, majority of the guys came on Zoom and I still run a meeting tonight. Well, I think that's great. Uh, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. And keep it up because they're all proud of you and you're uh, a great person to look towards for younger people who might think it's a little too tough to get through it. If you can get through it, if I can get through it, if Danny can get through it, then really anybody can get through it. So I appreciate you sharing your story. I appreciate your time, guys. All right, have a great weekend. Thanks so much. You Thanks, too. Saki. Bye-bye. Dan, I'm glad Saki joined us because it's the same refrain every week, which is what I'm trying to build on this show, that you know every week you're hearing you know different numbers, different games, you know, different backgrounds, but the story ends the same way. For those of us that are in recovery – which is gambling was everything to us, and now we have found a way to live where gambling is not a part of our lives, and our lives are better for it. Yeah, we've created a new life where the gambling no longer fits in, and that, that's one of the key points. Whenever, when I was with the New Jersey Council and even now with Epic, we talk to people and just let them know that you, know, you can try to fight and keep gambling out of your life, and you're going to get tired. You're going to get worn down, and that's when addiction finds us in our weak moments. We need to instead create a new life where it no longer fits in. That's you know, changing your people, places, and things, changing your language, whatever it is. It's different for each person, but we've got to create that new life where it no longer fits in. I don't want to speak to that for a minute because part of your new life, if you don't mind me bringing it up, uh, with Epic Risk Management is that you've gone on a kind of a nationwide college tour talking to uh, young athletes, uh, young men and women uh, who are on campus. And I wonder for you what's been uh, enlightening to you about you know, that experience that you've uh, started a couple months ago. Yeah, we, we were uh, blessed with an opportunity to partner with the NCAA, which was announced at the end of January, to, to go around to Division One, Two, II, and Three. you know, over 1,200 college campuses and universities, to highlight, the uh, bring awareness to gambling addiction, uh, prevent gambling-related harms, reduce the likelihood, while preserving the integrity, right? We know sports betting is growing across the country. We know student-athletes are at risk because they have certain personality traits, that, that competitive nature, the fear of failure, not knowing when to stop with that drive. And you know what's interesting, as I've gone to each campus, the willingness from the staff, the coaches, the compliance officers at the collegiate level, they are all seeing this as a concern. They don't want their student athletes to fall victim to gambling-related harms. They don't want to compromise the sport. They don't want the team to suffer. But I think one of the biggest takeaways, and I'll say this very openly, was from uh, one of the coaches that I spoke with at one of the Big East universities. He said, my, my concern is not just the gambling, but it's also the threat to the student athlete. It's the, it's the athlete that misses a shot in a critical moment that costs somebody money because they bet on the game. And now that athlete's getting death threats and getting threatened on their social media. That was, has been one takeaway that's a consistent concern by coaches. Ohio State had a player. Who yeah, I think, uh, right, who received death threats after having a bad game, right? Didn't something like that happen? Yeah, EJ Liddell with Ohio State. When Oral Roberts upset them, the 15 beat the two seed. And then after that, he was getting death threats on campus. You know, getting uh, racial and homophobic slurs from a young person in his 20s, maybe 20, 19, 20 years old, right. who's just playing a sport that he loves to play. And his quote was, what did I do to deserve this? And when you go on these college campuses, are the kids willing to uh, interact with you and say, hey, listen, uh, I have gambled. I have buddies who gamble. Because <clears throat> I find that when I talk to my own kids, and I've been, you know, a number of uh, high schools have reached out to me to speak at high schools, that the 
the rhetoric is that the kids are talking about gambling in the hallways all the time now. You know, I've found it's less, I'm finding it less open at the collegiate NCAA level than I was in the high schools, Craig. And here's why, you know, a lot of these athletes are on scholarship and a lot of these student athletes, if they admit to something in public, they're concerned. They don't want to risk their, their scholarship. They don't right. want to risk their eligibility. But what I will say is that we're finding after a session, college athlete will come up to me on the side and say, listen, you know, my father gambles, my mom gambles. Uh, you know, I have a gambling problem, but I don't know who to talk to about it. I'm scared. So, yes, we are seeing college athletes and hearing college athletes come up to us after talking about the problems that they're having. Sometimes they don't know where to go. And I will say this. When I start every session, I always ask by a show of hands, how many of you know of someone who struggles with drug or alcohol in your life? And almost every hand in the room goes up. Right. But when I ask the same question and I apply gambling to it, maybe about a quarter of the hands go up. So, you know, we, we do what we do because we want to heighten awareness, you know, because not many people know of someone or think they know of someone who has a gambling problem. By the end of the session, I'll have student athletes come up to me and say, you know what? I actually do think I know of someone with a problem based on what you just educated us on. Yeah, yeah, part of that, and that's why we do this show, because a lot of people just don't know the signs to look for. You do with drinking and drugs. We've talked about that a million times. So I just think the more awareness we uh, call to it, the more we talk about it, the more gambling becomes part of the everyday conversation. While I know that's scary for a lot of people, it's also good for people like you and I in the field that we're now in, because the more people talk about it, the more normal the conversation becomes. The more normal the conversation becomes, the easier it is for somebody to ask for help when they've got a problem. Like, it's not brain surgery, and I really right. think it goes in that order. I agree with you. I agree with you. And, you know, what I've found in my time so far since with Epic, I always talk about a Netflix show that I watch called Bad Sport. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've Bad not. Sport. It, one of the episodes talks about uh, integrity of sport, different uh, sporting events that were compromised. And one of them in particular was 1989 Arizona State. They had a point-shaving scandal. Yeah, I know the Arizona. bookie. Uh, I mean, I know I know the kid. The, he's actually in New York City. He owns a number of bars yes. in New York City. Yes, and, they, and Netflix did a great job documenting that entire scenario. And a number of the compliance officers that I talked to around the college campuses, they're very familiar with that. That was a huge issue. Yeah, the story, and, and for those of you that don't know, there's a kid on the Arizona State campus who was uh, kind of like the, the local bookie for a minute. And then uh, he was tight with some guys that played, and all of a sudden games are now being fixed and points are being shaved. And uh, there are a couple wise guys in Arizona who recognized that there was suddenly this weird uh, action being placed on Arizona State games. So they, they looked into it. They found out what the kid was doing. And then they strong-armed the kid because they had a lot more money, a lot more power. Yeah. And yeah. this kid who started off just as like a campus bookie now was uh, in trouble with, uh, you know, mobsters. And uh, you know how that story yeah. ends. Exactly. And, you know, at the time, if you remember, like, the, the point guard for the team was basically like, what's the harm? We're still winning the game. You're right. just asking me to win by eight instead of uh, 18. Yeah. And so these college kids do not see harm with it. And. You know, the other, the other piece that we add on to this college tour that we're doing and the work we're doing at the NCAA over a multi-year deal is the name, image, and likeness, Craig, because that's a whole other world. Right. When you, when you have student-athletes that, depending on jurisdiction and which state they're in and which college they go to, could potentially strike a deal with a gambling oper operator to promote or market services or gambling opportunities and make money off of it using their name, image, and likeness, that's a whole other world. Well, I'll do you one better. One of the major uh, operators in America, I will not say their name, um, has an on-campus advertising deal with Michigan State. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, so they, you know, some operators, not all of them, 
but some operators you just don't care what the potential damage is. If I can get a 19-year-old to be interested in my product now, that becomes a customer for life. And that's really dangerous and really crazy. And we're out of time, so we'll talk about that more next week, perhaps. Always good talking to you. Thanks for joining. That's Dan Trelaro with Epic Risk Management. And always a big thanks to the New Jersey Council on Compulsive Gambling, also known as 800-GAMBLER, for their continued support of this program. We appreciate it. Mark Malusis is up next. And then Evan and I are back Monday at 2 o'clock. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. April is now here. See you Monday. Have a great weekend.